So we are going to be talking about the root. Now, you probably know that the root is a very popular word in the Bible when it comes to uh, money. Do you know the verse in the Bible that talks about the money and uh, root? Do you know that one? Anyone in the room? Don't, uh, wait a minute. Don't say it out loud because you will be wrong. Um, I'm saying that because I know some of you are right in this room, but some of you are wrong because you have heard the phrase like this. Money is the root of all evil. Have you heard it? I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I know you've heard it. It's been, it's been around forever. For, I, mean, I don't know how long exactly, but it's shown up all over the place. Money is the root of all evil. And it's so ingrained in sort of one of those phrases that we say that we just sort of write it off whenever it's important to write it off and and we embrace it whenever it's important for us to embrace it. If there is a public figure you don't like, all you need to do is figure out where that public figure is getting their money and instantly they're evil. Because now that you know they're getting paid for whatever it is that they're doing, you can say, well, money is the root of all evil, and therefore, because they're getting paid, they must be evil, right? Or it's a politician that you know must be good. And so you trace their money back, and you say, well, I'm so glad they don't take money from that group of people, because that group of people has the evil money. But this this person, he's fine. We do this weird thing with money where we change our attitude towards money whenever it fits us, whenever it suits us. And we can use phrases like this as our excuse, money is the root of all evil. However, that's wrong because the Bible never says the money is the root of all evil, even though that phrase comes from the Bible. Let me show you what the Bible actually has to say. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see, all the words are there. Money, root, all evil, right? Money is, well, it's, there's some things that are different, right? Because, I mean, it's not, it's not the root of all evil. It is all kinds of evil. And it's not the root, it's a root. And it's not even money, it's the love of money. And so, it's not money is the root of all evil, it's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So, okay, therefore we can just take it easy, you know, because it's the love of money. I don't love money, I just really like it. I don't love money, but I really want more of it in my bank account. You know, and I'll, I like, you know, the numbers are fine. I just want to see the, the numbers going. I don't love money. I mean, I'm not, I don't go home at night and I get out all my cash and put it on the ground and roll around in it. You know, it's not like that's what I'm, I don't love money. I just like numbers. Yeah, that's what it is. I just like numbers. And so we give ourselves all kinds of excuses for how to deal with this sort of stuff. But I'm going to tell you, if the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, then we can't blame all evil on money. It's just one of the roots. And, but stepping back a little farther, what does it mean when he says love? Love doesn't come out of my wallet. Love doesn't come out of my direct deposit system. Love doesn't come from outside of me at all. Love is a thing that exists inside of me, in my heart. In other words, 
Money might be a root, but there is a the root of our money problems. And the root of our money problems is our heart. If money is one of the roots of society's problems, our heart is the root of our money problems. And until we get our heart attitudes towards money correct, we will continue to have money problems, and those problems will result in social problems, society's problems, and all that other kind of stuff. All kinds of evil, as Paul would say. Now, I know for some of you, you hear the word evil, and you're like, well, all right then, I'm going to avoid that as much as possible. You know, you're trying to be a good person. You don't want to deal with evil at all. You just want to be a good person. But um, you see, there's a problem. There's not just evil that we have to face. When we're talking about money, there's also a lot of grief. Let me show you the rest of the verse. We just read half of the verse so far. Paul says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, but look at the rest of the verse. He says this, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And there's so many words in there that I just don't want to be true in my life. They didn't leave the faith intentionally. They just wandered. They just floated away. They just, little by little, somehow their money desires caused them to, little by little, end up away from the faith. It wasn't intentional. It was just a wandering. And then on top of it, they end up piercing themselves. I hate piercing. I think piercing is one of the most appropriate words because the word itself sounds like it's hurting my ears, and I don't want anything to pierce me. I'm not interested in piercing. I was very glad as a, as a young boy that none of society ever expected me to get a piercing, and then I grew up in the age of the Gen Xers when suddenly lots of friends of mine were getting piercings, and I'm like, wait a minute, No. I'm not interested in having anything that goes through me. <laughs> like, like needles for a vaccine, that's, as, that's where I draw the line. You know, I don't want it to go in and come out the other side. I'm not interested in any of that stuff. But some people, eager for money, have pierced themselves with grief. Such a terrible, terrible thing. No matter what it takes to motivate you, we should all be motivated by this idea that we have to be people who step away from the heart problems of money so that we can finally get a grip on what it is that God would have us to be and to do in this world with regard to it, with regard to the society, with regard to our money. And so, we're going to spend four weeks talking about this. But the first week, we're going to talk about greed. That word that basically just encompasses what Paul said, those who are eager for money. Now, I know greed can apply to an eagerness for all the other things of the world, like I'm really, I really want a Tesla. I would really like a Tesla. I think it would be great. Don't any of you buy me a Tesla because then I will feel very, very guilty that you have done that. But, you know, if one of you wins the lottery and then decides to buy me a Tesla, that's a good thing. I myself will not be playing the lottery, and so that option is out for me. So anyway, I don't know. But if you win it, I won't blame you. I won't judge you. Just, you know, Tesla. Anyway, I would love a Tesla, but here's the thing. I'm not greedy 
for the end because I don't have to be greedy for the end. I can be greedy for the thing that gets me to the end. It's money that's going to get me to the end. And so I never feel a sense of greed for the thing. I kind of do feel a sense of greed for the thing that's going to get me the thing, the money. And so we're going to talk about greed today. And in order to do that, we're going to jump into 1 Timothy chapter 6, the context. Reading verse 10 all by itself might give you a few interesting aphorisms, but you need to know the context of it, and that will help us get a grasp on what it means to be less greedy. Take a look at it. It says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I'm going to make a quick comment about that. The context of this passage in what Paul is writing to Timothy is there were some teachers in Timothy's area where Timothy was a pastor. There were teachers in that area who were trying to act godly and teach godly things so that they could make money. And Paul was upset at them. He was like, some people think that godliness is a means to financial wealth. That if you, could just, if you could just leverage somehow that you are spiritual enough that people will pay attention to you, then you can leverage your spirituality and the fact that people are paying attention to you to get some money. And that was something that was true back then. It's still true today. People are still leveraging their faith or their pretend faith all the time to get people to pay attention to them and eventually to get money. But, but Paul is making a contrast and he says, no, you need to have godliness with contentment. And that's great gain. A different kind of gain, but a better gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Oh my goodness, what would it be like to be content? Wouldn't you just love to be content? It's November. Every November, the same thing happens in my life. I mean, literally, it's the same thing every single, every single year. Someone at the beginning of November, or sometimes even at the end of October, will say these words to me, Jeff, what do you want for Christmas? And immediately, my first thought is, I don't need anything for Christmas because I'm fine. I'm doing well. I don't need anything new for Christmas. And whenever I think about the things that I really want, that I really need for Christmas, I'm like, no one's going to buy that for me. And if they did buy it for me, I'd feel really guilty. <clears throat> Tesla. But anyway, the idea is that I don't really need anything. When they ask me the question, what do you want for Christmas? My joke with my wife is I want a cookie, but I don't want any cookie. I want a big cookie and that would be you know that would be content then I would have food and I would also have well I already have clothing so I could be content and that contentment is very desirable for me at the beginning of November and I feel noble when I tell people I don't need anything because I feel content there's just one problem with that as soon as they ask me what I want for Christmas now I'm thinking what do I want for Christmas and that thought begins to change me. And that thought begins to modify my behaviors. And now I'm thinking my mom, she is going to buy me something or she's going to send me cash or something along those lines. But I know she would like it better if she knew what she was buying for me because then she would feel happy. And I want my mom to feel happy. And so I think it's my job as a good son to give her the best possible gift that she should buy for me so that then she knows that she has loved me well. And then I feel, so what I do is I go on to Amazon and I make a wish list 
And the longer I'm on Amazon, the longer the wish list gets. And then I get some ads. Some of them are in Amazon. Some of them get mailed to me. Some of them show up on my front doorstep. Have you heard of this thing called Black Friday? It's apparently a six-month-long process now. And as a result, Black Friday ads are everywhere. I drove by, I drove by Walmart just yesterday because we were picking up some food for Fusion tonight, and there are all these signs in front of Walmart saying, Black Friday deals, pick up here. And I'm like, it's just started November. Anyway, so I then get these ads about all these things that are going to be cheap, and now amazingly, by the end of November, I really have a clear sense of what I want. And by the end of November, I really do want some things for Christmas. But at the end of November, they're all on sale for only like a short period of time. So sometimes I just get them. And it has happened more times than I care to admit because it's more times than I can remember. Where on Christmas Day, I unwrap a thing that I had already bought for myself. And I just gotta tell you, greed can stain your relationships. It is so often that I get myself in the journey of what do I want, that then somehow on that journey, I end up meeting my own needs and not letting someone else meet my needs. And in that moment, they're disappointed. At that moment, they realize that they were trying to love me, but they didn't need to love me because I can take care of myself. And then they don't feel needed. They don't feel wanted. They don't feel valued. The relationship is broken. This happened with me and my kids too. I mean, it's never a time when my kids bought me something that I had already bought for myself because they couldn't afford anything. But, but with my kids, it was a different sort of story. Christmas would come around, and my idea always was our kids don't need another pile of toys. Our kids don't need more junk in their bedrooms just filling up their bedrooms. What I want them to do is I want them to get like one thing that's like a nice special thing that makes them feel like this was a very important time of the year. Mom and dad, maybe two things if Santa wants to bring them something. But Jen and I are just going to buy them one thing and we're just going to go that route. That's sort of what I was always thinking. When Jen and I got married and we started talking about having kids, one of my first thoughts was, I want a one-item Christmas. I had this pastor friend, and they don't do any gifts at Christmas. They do a few gifts on St. Nicholas Day, interesting, which is on December 6th or 13th. I can't remember which. But anyway, they don't do gifts on Christmas. And I'm like, oh, I want something like that, you know, because then it's just about family. Then maybe there's one special thing. But over the time, my kids just, they want more stuff. And that, that kind of bothers me because... I'm trying to meet their needs all year long. And that one moment every year reminds me of how discontented they are with the life that I'm trying to give them. And I don't take it personally because, you know, at the time they were little kids and these days they don't admit it. Um, But, you know, I don't take it personally, but there was this sense back then when it was like, I want them to just be content with their mom and with me and and with our family. But every time we get into that mode of greed, there's this discontent and the people who want to provide for you then feel less valuable. Greed can mess up a relationship. 
But beyond that, greed can do even more. Take a look again at verse 9. I want to show you this. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Those who want to get rich fall into a trap that can plunge them into ruin and destruction. You and I all know this to be true. It is called debt. Because if you want to get something that you cannot get, our society will give you the ability to get it. But that means next month you're in a hole. This month you are making it. But next month you're in a hole. And then the next month after that, you're in a bigger hole. And the next month after that, you're in a bigger hole. And eventually, we're in the deepest, darkest holes. And we say to ourselves, how did we get here? And debt is only one of the examples of how greed can ruin your life. But it can. Not only can greed strain a relationship, greed can also ruin our lives. But I want to bring you back to verse 10 because this is the one that scares me the most. In verse 10, remember, Paul said this, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. We've covered that in the strained relationship. We've covered that in the, in the, you know, the idea that I'm, my life could be ruined, but, but my faith. What about the idea that my faith could be ruined? There's a passage, I, I mean, just the fact that greed can ruin my faith ought to scare me. And I've wondered a long time how that process works, how the process of wandering works. But there's this passage in Hebrews that actually gives us a really interesting answer. And so I want to walk you through that passage in Hebrews just a little bit. It's Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. We're going to do that, and then we're going to come back to Timothy chapter 6 just real briefly. But let's look at Hebrews 13. It says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What can mere mortals do to me? The writer of Hebrews might be Paul, we don't know actually who wrote Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews is telling us that contentment is the result of two becauses. Contentment is the result of two becauses. The first because is that God says, I'll never leave you. And the second because is that God says, he's, his, he's our helper. So here's the idea. We can have contentment in our lives because of these two principles. One, God promises his presence. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And two, God promises us his security. Now that's really interesting. Because our definition of security, I don't think has ever been in line with God's definition of security. We have this weird definition of security that is very, very close to the word comfort. We have this definition of security that is very, very close to the word safety. We have this definition of security that means something about the moment right now. 
that I, I feel secure if my moment right now is safe. I feel secure if my moment right now is comfortable. I feel secure if my moment right now involves me having a sense of self-esteem. My security is based on this moment right now having everything in my life sort of feel like it's in place. Nothing is teetering. Nothing is ready to fall. I feel secure if my now is in place. There's just a problem with that. God's idea of security is not limited to now. Did you notice what the passage said? It said, what can mere mortals do to us? Well, certainly you know the answer to that, right? A lot. Mere mortals can do a lot to us. Mere mortals can take away your job. Mere mortals can take away your money. Mere mortals can take away your life. Mere mortals can do a lot to your nows. But mere mortals can't do squat to your forevers. And see, God is saying, I want to give you security, but a kind of security that money will never buy. Man, I think in a lot of ways, money is used in my life, in my own heart, just merely as insurance. You know, I remember for a while, my family would go on car trips and one of the most important things that we needed to do with car trips, with any kind of vacations, is my parents needed to convert money into a thing called a traveler's check. Now, are you, are you fam- I don't know if you're familiar with these things. They used to be very popular because what you would do is you would convert your money into a traveler's check, and it was like having a checking account, and then you could use that check that piece of paper wherever you needed to, but if you lost it or if someone stole it, you could make a quick phone call to the company that issued the traveler's check and they would immediately invalidate all those traveler's checks and you wouldn't lose very much money. It was a, it was a great thing. And so that was a major way that you tried to provide your family security because you knew you needed money. Money was the most important thing on a family trip. Because if you ran out of money, you couldn't fill your car with gas, and you couldn't make it home. If you ran out of money, all kinds of problems. And so traveler's checks. Now we don't do the traveler's checks, we do the credit cards. And I make sure every time I go anywhere in a car trip, I can forget my driver's license. But you better believe I won't forget a credit card. Because that's my insurance, more than my car insurance. My real insurance is the recognition that I can take care of business if I need to take care of business. The funny thing is, even though all of us use money as our security blanket, it has zero ability to do in my life real security. It cannot get me to the place of eternity It can only make my now a little bit more stable, but it can't possibly do anything about my future. I can't use money as an insurance policy like that, and yet I'm so tempted to do so. But what about presence? The idea of God's presence is something that I think a lot of us think has nothing to do with money. And then other times we think it has a lot to do with money. I'll give you an example. 
Let's say some tragedy happens in your life and you immediately have to spend a whole lot of money all at once. Your bank account is empty. You don't know how you're going to pay the next bills. You're worried and you say, God, how could this happen to me? Right? As if, as if the, the tragedy of loss of money has somehow related to me feeling like God is somehow against me. This is a weird thing that we do as people. We are people, all of us, who like to think in terms of quantity. Let me explain that. See, it's not just that I have credit card. It's that I have a credit limit attached to that credit card. That's the thing that gives me security. If the credit card were maxed out, I wouldn't have any security. It's the quantity that gives me the sense of security. It's also quantity that gives me the sense of whether or not God is involved in my life. Literally, a lot of us will be like, man, I've got more than I need. Rarely we'll say that. But sometimes we'll say, I've got more than I need. Thank you, God. Right? Or sometimes we'll say, I don't have enough. God, I need you to be involved in my life. And there's this subtle doubt that says the quantity that I have determines the level of involvement God has given in my life. And so we say, God, would you get involved in my life and bring more wealth, bring more money into my life? But maybe God is specifically saying, no, I really want you to be that poor because I'm doing something else. See, God promises his presence to us. But a lot of times we interpret God's presence through our eyes of quantity. We like quantity. But God regularly proves himself to us. Not through quantity, but through time. Through time. Let me tell you a little story illustrating this. A number of years ago, when we were trying to raise money in the church to re, you know, remodel this building. We were at another location and we knew that we needed to raise some money so that we could have some money set aside to buy or build some other building. We didn't even know this was going to be our building. So this was like three years before we moved into this building. We decided we were going to have a, a financial fundraising campaign. And I've told this story before. Some of you have heard it. We're going to have this fundraising campaign. Now, there are a couple problems with that. The first problem is that as the leader of the church that's doing a financial fundraising campaign, I sort of need to set an example. I sort of need to say, okay, this is, you know, I'm a part of this too. So I can't just have a financial fundraising campaign and then me myself not get involved in any of it. And my wife and I had already been, we've been since the time that we were first married and even long before then, we'd been tithers. The first 10% of our income goes straight back to God. But now there's this idea that we have to give extra money to this campaign that the church is doing so that we can have some money that we can finally build uh, another place that our church can move to. And during that process, I was worried. I was stressed primarily because about six months before the financial campaign started, I had sat down with a spreadsheet. Oh man. And I had done the most amazing spreadsheet work in my life. I had taken all of the money that Jen was making and all the money that I was making and all the money that we thought we could make over the next couple of years and I put it all into the spreadsheet and I, I got everything arranged, my kids' uh, expenses for school and, then, and I was like, can we pay for college? And I got it all coordinated and this was what I came up with. In the coming nine years, I figured this all out, in the coming nine years, we would be able to completely pay off a house, and two college tuitions by following my spreadsheet strategy. 
I got it all set up. My spreadsheet was all set up so that when my son went to college, we would shift this money in that particular way and we'd be able to cover his college tuition. And then when my daughter went to college, we'd be able to shift some money and cover her tuition. And by the end of my daughter's graduation from college, the house would be paid off at the same time as her college graduation. I'm like, this is amazing. I was so in love with my spreadsheet work. It was amazing. And then the church asks for money. Well, I was asking the church for money, and then I, so, so Jen and I are talking, we're praying, and we decide to give a certain amount of money every single month for three years. I'm like, it's ruining my spreadsheet. The whole spreadsheet strategy was dead, but fine. Let's put some money into the church, see what God can do with it. And uh, cool things happened. I mean, we, we moved into this building for a good long time. We were like well over 200 people every single Sunday, you know, before all COVID stuff hit. And we had an um, Easter Sunday here where we had about 400 people. And it was just a lot of really amazing things that God had been doing in our lives through that whole journey. And I'm like, wow, I'm really glad we got to be part of that until my son needed to go to college. And so I pulled out the spreadsheets and I started doing some math. And I was like, man, our whole saving strategy went out the window. And I looked at the numbers and my son needed 500 more dollars every single month in order for us to pay for his college tuition without going into debt. And I was like, we're so close. We're so close. So the way we worked it out, scholarships and all that other stuff, all the things put together, you know, $500 short. I'm like, great. Now what am I going to do? So I start frantically trying to find new ways to make myself $500 every single month. I'm a nerd. I like to program computer things. I made our church app. And so I started selling our church app to other churches. And I'm like, well, maybe I could get one church a month and maybe they could give me $500 a month. And, and then I, I found an ice cream shop near where my son is going to school and they didn't have an app. And I was like, let me build you an app. I'll charge you $3,000 for it. How about that? And they said yes for crying out loud. Why? I don't know. But they did. And so I, I'm, I'm, beginning to, I'm beginning to strategize all this stuff about ways that I can finagle $500 more a month. And at the end of August that year, Jen comes home one day and she says, Hey, Jeff, uh, my boss just told me I get a raise. I said, really, how much? And she tells me the number. I don't remember her numbers. So I sat down, I put it in the spreadsheet, and it was $500 every single month, net. I was like, God, you're sneaky. See, here's the thing. The reason I tell you that story is not to make you some sort of promise that you give God money and He's going to give you the money back. I'm not trying to make that promise. What I'm trying to do is to say, if Jen and I had never given that money to the church to put ourselves in a different position financially than we thought we would have been, it's entirely possible Jen still would have gotten that raise that August, right? It's entirely possible she still would have gotten that raise. I'm not saying that God miraculously made her boss give her a $500 raise. Maybe he did, and I'm grateful no matter how he coordinated it. But I'm definitely sure of one thing. 
I would not have seen that as an answer to prayer unless we had made the sacrifice many years before. In other words, my act of doing something that was anti-greed ended up resulting in something that was pro-faith. I had a stronger awareness of God's involvement in my life. I had a stronger awareness of God's uh, timing, that he was ready to meet our needs exactly when the needs showed up. During that whole time, we didn't pay off the house. We didn't do anything miraculous with our, with our money. We didn't follow the spreadsheet and get all these things working exactly the way. But at every single step along the journey, God was taking care of us. And here's my point. We like to think in, ter- we like to think in terms of quantity. God, I just want so much that I don't have to worry about anything. And God says, no, I'm in the business of time. I want you to have enough for this one step. And when you take that step, you will have enough for the next step when we get there. Because God would rather be with me on the journey. And he wants me to know he's with me on the journey. The whole point of that is to say, the more money I have, the less aware of God I will be. The more money I have, the less need for God I will feel. And that's why those who have been eager for money can find themselves wandering from the faith because all the things God is doing to take care of them, they just can't see. Because they can take care of themselves. Every Christmas, I have no idea the level of emotional conscious thought loved ones in my life put in to trying to find the perfect gift for me to give it to me to see the joy on my face and the fact that I did it myself means that I lose out on all of that awareness of how they perfectly chose the perfect thing all of this just means The more I take care of myself, the less I need God. The more I take care of myself, the less I'm aware of God. And so our heart issue when it comes to money goes all the way back to this place. Am I going to trust that God is with me? If I'm going to trust that God is with me, I only need enough for the next step. And secondly, am I going to trust that God is going to take care of me? If God is going to take care of me, then I need to trust, I can trust, that no matter what happens down here, the big picture is well in his hands. Greed is all about me trying to meet my needs right now. Or me trying to build up a nest egg so that I can take care of my unknowns in the future. But God is about meeting my needs as he walks to the future with me. So, this whole idea of uh, contentment is very difficult. But I think Paul gives us a hint. Back in one of the verses we already saw, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, has a hint for how to be content. And I want to share it with you. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Here's the hint. Contentment comes when at the heart of us we recognize that literally nothing belongs to us. 
Everything in my life came from someone else. Everything. That means everything in my life is a gift. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I say, hey, you know what, I got that skill, that's a pretty good skill. I'm glad I worked on that skill, developed that skill. But the truth of the matter is, someone else taught me that skill. Or even if I learned it myself, I learned it somehow through the work of other people. Um, The first time I taught myself how to play guitar, I had a guitar that I did not build. You know, everything in my life has come from other people, literally everything. And so the idea that anything in my life is something I can possess or own or hold on to or think that's the thing that's giving me security is completely fraudulent. Here's the thing. When I say, God, I brought nothing to the table, and when I leave this table, I'm taking nothing with me. Therefore, literally everything on this table is a gift. Here's the key to contentment. Gratitude. Simply that. Every single time you see that advertisement on the television that is telling you that thing that you need to get that you don't have, and then you think, man, I just need a little bit more money in order to get that thing so that I can feel that kind of happy. No, feel happy right now. Be grateful for all the stuff that you currently have. Some days God will bring something new into your life. Great, wonderful. Some days God won't. Great, wonderful. Because literally everything that we have is from God. Grateful. Gratitude. That's the key. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to deal with some practical matters. Next week, we're going to talk about the fundamental discipline of tithing and why it works. We're going to talk the week after that about just some pragmatic things. How do you plan your finances? What are some some basic financial principles that we can understand from Scripture that we should follow? And then the final week of this month, we're going to talk about some really cool stuff, particularly generosity. So I encourage you to join me for the next few weeks as we go through this. But remember, what we're dealing with is not money. We're dealing with the heart. All of our problems in society, if you trace them back to money, you can keep tracing and get it all the way back to the heart. And I want you and I want me to not be people who pierce ourselves with many griefs. I want you and I want me to be people who find that godliness with contentment is great gain. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.